Jesus' name. Welcome to this um, edition of the leadership meeting, senior leadership meeting, which is all of the executive council and their spouses, all of the, each of the congregational elder teams and their spouses and all licensed ministers and their spouses. Praise God. Um, The next leadership meeting will be June the 17th. Saturday, June the 17th at 9.30 in the morning on Saturday. This is probably the only Friday night leadership meeting that we will have. And uh, schedule and situations, including Easter, uh, required that. This is going to be a very, well, that's not true, last Leadership meeting was different, and this one's going to be different than from what you may expect. Uh, I have a very clear word from the Lord, a directional word uh, from the Lord for this church, and I believe it is a directional word for the church. I'm going to be that uh, bold in making that statement, and... Uh, so, because of the importance of this, there are, uh, and I'm asking you not to do this now, because it's not going to help you. You'll get bogged down in them. There are three documents that have been posted today on my website, apostoliciron.com, and they are available for you to download Uh, at no charge. Uh, They are for study purposes. Uh, The set of notes that I, that are entitled leadership meeting, you, if you open those, you will realize that there's literally no possibility of teaching those tonight and I have no intention to. They are for reference, but they are not completed. in fact, right now they're 24 pages, and by the time I have finished, I would expect them to be really near 50. Uh, that's how important this subject is, and the, my, my desire or the compelling that I feel in the Holy Ghost to provide as much uh, study material on this subject as possible. Uh, so that if you're interested in receiving this revelation, that you can do that. You'll have that available. Uh, the other two documents are uh, versions of chapters that I have written. Actually, the first writing of them was in March of 1997. I have not published them to this date. And... Uh, With the direction I have tonight, I can foresee attempting to publish them in the near future. Uh, So, uh, and you'll understand why as we get into this. Uh, 
this year actually it's been a long time but really the focus of the holy ghost for me personally and what i have been called to speak on this year has been really the the desire to determine what is apostolic and what is not apostolic and I mean not as opposed to the denominal world, but as opposed to Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism and being apostolic are not synonymous. They're not really even comparable. They're like Esau and Jacob. They were born from the same womb, but they're headed in different directions. I'll say that one again. Pentecostalism and being apostolic are like Esau and Jacob. They were born from the same womb, but they're headed in different directions. And as the Lord continues to clearly define what being apostolic is, you will see that many people are very comfortable being Pentecostal do not want to be apostolic. And some think that the only requirement to be apostolic is Acts 2.38, one God and holiness. Uh, having the apostles' doctrine in no way qualifies you to be apostolic. That's that same womb. We're all born in, from the same womb. The womb is Acts 2.38, one God, holiness, etc., etc. That's the womb we're all born from. But it's not where we're going. No, neither is it how we're going to get there. Praise God. I have a lot of scriptures written down. Some of them I will read, some I will not. Uh, I cannot wait for the person on the computer who I, I don't know who it is, but I can't wait for them. So if they can get there quickly, then you can read it from the screen. Otherwise, I'm going to read from the, from my notes. Uh, what does it mean to be apostolic? Acts 2.41 and 42, and then they that gladly received his word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So there were three additional qualifications for even the foundation of what it means to be apostolic. And you'll notice that not one of those says anything about church. That's being Pentecostal. When church is your focus, attending church is your focus, and your church calendar is your focus, you are Pentecostal. Apostolics go to church. But that's not their focus. Their focus is obeying the scripture. Uh, 
all of it. Faith, lifestyle, vision, dedication, commitment, ministry, etc., etc., etc. All of these are uh, parts of being apostolic. Paul, who was born out of due season, the scripture says of him, be ye followers of me, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. Now, my example is not Peter and John, because they walked with him. They physically touched them. him. He physically touched them. They ate with him. They were in a boat with him. They spent time with him publicly and privately. They, their auditory system heard him speak physical words. I cannot relate to them. But Paul is the only one of the apostles who said, be like me. Not because he was an egotist, but because he was born out of due season. He did not walk with Jesus. He did not hear his voice. You say on the road to Damascus, yeah, he sure did, but that doesn't transcend what he didn't have. So he can say to you and I, follow me as I follow Christ. And the Greek's stronger than that. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul would be the truest example in concept and ministry and lifestyle and commitment to being an apostolic that you and I can be today. He also was the the apostle to the Gentiles. He was the one of the apostles that was focused on the world, truly focused on the world. There is no evidence in the Bible. Now, there's some church history that claims that various apostles traveled outside of Judea or Israel, uh, one of them being Thomas, who supposedly was flayed alive in India. That may or may not be true. I have no biblical basis for that. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Scripture. That's all post Biblical writings that appeal to that. We do know that even much later in the book of Acts, chapter 15, which was, was many, a couple of decades at the very least from the day of Pentecost, none of the twelve had left Jerusalem. If they were still alive, they probably abandoned Jerusalem. Jerusalem in 70 A.D. But their focus was Jerusalem. So Paul is my example. Paul is the one I imitate. Paul is the one I follow. For the old, in the Old Testament, the guy there for me is David. In the New Testament, it's Paul. I don't discount Peter. I don't discount John. I don't discount any of them. 
but Paul is my example. Praise God. I have spent uh, some time waiting on the Lord and listening to the Lord to try to, okay, 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 if I'm, if I'm not trying to be Pentecostal because that has become so full of tradition that cannot be supported biblically. And I'm not talking about Acts 2.38 and oneness of God and holiness standards. It's so full of tradition. So many things we do, we cannot biblically confirm. For instance, the whole focus that everything happens around a church service schedule. It's impossible to support that biblically. Impossible. It's possible to support getting together, coming together. In fact, the book says we should be doing it a whole lot more than we are. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, and so much the more so as you see the day approaching. What's Pentecost doing today? Pentecost is eliminating services, not adding services. Probably less than 10% of the Pentecostal churches in existence today have as many churches as they did 10 years ago. Most of them have cut services out. But when your whole focus is coming to church and a church calendar It sure hinders your ability to even be Pentecostal. So I'm, 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 my, my spirit has been just reaching out to the Lord and I prayed to Him about this. Okay, okay, okay. What is being apostolic as a, as a body? as a ministry, as a concept, as a vision, as faith. What does that look like? I mean, I can, I can go to scriptures and measure my salvation against the scriptures on salvation. I can go to the scripture and measure my prayer life by the scriptures on prayer. I could go to the scriptures and measure my personal devotion by the scriptures on that. So if that's God's principle, and it is, there has to be in the book a plan, a set of principles, whereby those who hunger to be apostolic as a body can measure themselves By the book. Not by tradition. Not by man's expectations. Not by the teachings of our fathers. I deeply appreciate every man of God that's ever sacrificed to get the oneness movement to where it is today. I appreciate that. But when you look at who it was that crucified Jesus. The ringleaders of those that crucified Jesus 
were those that felt like he was betraying the teachings of the fathers. Not the Bible. He gave them plenty of proof he wasn't violating the scripture. But he was, he was violating the, the, the traditions of the elders or the teachings of the fathers. And they were so committed to the teachings of the fathers over the scripture that they had him killed for it. And I will say this to you. God is drawing a line through the church. Every place I've been around the world just in these first four months of the year. I said this last night in the Thursday night service for Antioch West. I'm saying it to you today. And I'm saying this everywhere I'm going because the Holy Ghost is doing it. The Lord is drawing a line in the church today. He's drawing a line. And you're going to decide which that side of that line you're going to be on. Those that are satisfied with churchianity, Pentecostal churchianity, are those who are desperately hungry for the apostolic things of God. Because that's what Jesus commanded us to do. (laughs) Here's the first scripture that I don't have in my notes. So we will go here really quickly. This is really very powerful stuff right here. We go to Matthew 28 and 18. Uh, Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore. Let me start verse 16 just so you know who he's talking to. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power or authority, exousia, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Oh, I'm a follower of Jesus. Not if you're not a follower of the apostles. (laughs) Well, I believe what Jesus wrote. Well, you don't know what Jesus wrote because the sands of time have wiped it away because the only thing Jesus physically wrote was in the dirt when the woman taken in adultery was being accused. And they were wanting to stone her. That's the only thing he physically wrote. And so everything that we claim that came from Jesus was written by one of these men. And so if you're not following the apostles, you're not following Jesus. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. (laughs) Some of us sitting here, are absolutely more committed to culture than we are to truth. Because 
We're used to the certain way a culture does the things of God. And when that's not the culture followed, there is no black culture, Hispanic culture, white culture, poor culture, rich culture. There is no American culture. There is no culture in God but one, and that's Christ's culture. And the goal has to be finding out what his culture is and letting that be the culture you live by. And when something about his culture does, just bothers you in here, you really need to ask yourselves why. Because if that's not the truth, that means that no black man can ever preach to a white man or a Hispanic. No white man can ever preach to a Hispanic or a, a black man. No Hispanic can ever preach to a black man or a white man. Because it's all got to be, you can only reach those in your culture. Slight problem. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. So what does that do? That tells me, you know, everywhere Paul went, he went to the synagogue first and let them reject as he knew most of them were going to. And he says, okay, that was your chance. Now I'm going to the Gentiles. And why is it that the people of his culture rejected him and the people that were not of his culture accepted him? It's a lie. It's a deception. So the question is this. <laughs> what is the church supposed to look like? And I'm not talking about holiness. We already know what that's supposed to look like. And that's not what the church is supposed to look like. That's what I'm supposed to look like. That's not what the church is supposed to look like. It's what I'm supposed to look like. And what is the focus of the church supposed to be? Well, let's find out what it's not supposed to be. Hebrews 6 and 1. I'd love to read to you the entire chapter, but that time will not permit. Therefore, I'll read to you the first three verses. And if there's anyone sitting here who's in leadership in this church and you, you can't quote these three verses, there's your homework assignment for the next leadership meeting. I may just call on you randomly to stand up and quote them. You say, you're kidding. Try me. Why? Because these are that important. Hebrews 6 and 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, Singular doctrine of baptisms, plural, we know of two, water and spirit, and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permit. What is so important about that statement? He, these are foundational doctrines. Now I remember when we built the first complex here. I remember how frustrated I got with how long it took to get the foundation of the footers in, pour the slab. It took forever. By the time we got that done, the building went up in a brief amount of time. Comparatively, 
Heard the story the other day of an unfortunate church somewhere in the USA that the pastor hired his son-in-law who had only worked on small jobs to build this 40,000 square foot building. And by the time the people came out to put the roof on it, they found out the building was over two feet out of square. And when the guys that had signed contracts went to the county because they're not going to put their name on this building because it's not going to stand, the county required them to tear the whole thing down. Foundation's important. The foundation's got to be square. It's got to be, it's, it's got to be right. But it's not the building. You're not, you're not having church on a foundation today. The foundation holds all this up. But it becomes that which is not seen. It's evident in the stability of the building. But it's not what you talk about every service. But Pentecostalism sucks that lollipop every church service. Because that's how you control and manipulate people. It's either Acts 2.38 or oneness or God or holiness or tithe or coming to church faithfully. Over and over and over and over again. Do I believe those things? Absolutely 100% believe it. But it's foundation. It's not walls. It's not roof. It doesn't serve a purpose. It's what everything is built on. And we've spent so long preaching the foundation for a hundred plus years. 103 to be exact from the first time it was revealed that that began to be revealed in 1914. Hundred and three years, and we're still preaching the foundation. So much so, we don't even know what the church is supposed to look like. We don't know if we're building, if we're being used to God to build the building He wanted built or not. And I'm talking about a physical building. The Bible says we are His building. But does it look like what God wants it to look like? Is it, is, is it what He wants it to be? Well, how about this? First Corinthians chapter three, verse five. First Corinthians three and five. Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers by whom you believe even as the Lord gave to every man? I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. And every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Verse 9. I want that, I want that on the screen. There it is. For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. And in the context of these verses, he threw in that part at the last, the Holy Ghost did, ye are God's building, to let you know there's more than one metaphor that can be used to talk about the church. And every one of them brings a different perspective, and all those perspectives are important. But in the context of these verses that I've read to you tonight, First Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9, the focus is the planting, the watering, and eventually the reaping. 
And this has been just working in my spirit. This has just been working me over. And I'm, and all of a sudden, just, uh, I'm riding down the road coming back from Arkansas this past weekend. And it just lights flashed and horns sounded. And maybe not literally, but it just felt like that. Uh, like there was this big announcement. This is what you measure the church by. This is what you compare who and what you are to. We are God's husband. We are, get, get the split metaphor here. We are God's fellow laborers, but we're also his husbandry. And the Greek word there means farm. Now, there's another word used in here, which is uh, a, 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 a similar, comes from the same root as this. We are God's, he is called the husbandman, and we are called husbandmen. In one context, we're called the seed, except a grain of wheat fall in the ground and die, it abides alone, but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. But we're also called laborers in the harvest field. But the point is, Paul said, uh, I, wa- I sowed, Apollos, I planted, excuse me, Apollos watered, and God gave the increase. Is it possible we're trying to produce increase without doing those things that God has specifically called us to? Is it possible? Is it possible to have increase when our focus isn't sowing, our focus isn't watering, our focus is counting God, what God's doing, checking on how he's doing? Is there a pattern or biblical plan that we can follow and measure ourselves by? How about this? Mark chapter 4, verse 26. And he said, so is the kingdom of God. As if a man should cast seed into the ground. And should sleep and rise night and day. And the seed should spring up and grow. He knoweth not how. Because he's not the one producing it. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. Here's what the kingdom of God is. A man sows. And after he sows, labor-wise, there's nothing left for him to do but reap. What God does. But God can't do anything if the man doesn't do his part first. So I wonder at Antioch, what is the percentage of people actually involved in sowing any seed? We announce our church services. We count the visitors that come. 
But we don't measure how much seed we've sown. You don't think a good farmer has some idea how many, how much seed he's sown? Yes, he does. If he doesn't know, he's not a very good farmer. He knows how much seed he's sown. You can measure the amount of seed you've sown, and you can measure the amount that you reap. You sow, and you reap. Now, Paul talked about watering, and we will get into that. Because this is a little bit more detail than this this simple point at this point. But it's there. So I got a question. If I'm leading a ministry of any size, home group, cell group, care group as we call them, preaching point, daughter work, prison service, daughter work, congregation. If I take the focus of what we're doing and compare it to the scripture, How we doing? <laughs> well, we're praying and fasting. That's wonderful. Because when you don't have any, the field hadn't been plowed, and there's no, there's no seed that's been sown, all your praying and fasting is going to bring down rain, and rain's going to cause the weeds to grow really good. Because when you, when you pray and fast, and God responds, and he rains on a field that you have not plowed, and you have not sown any seed in, you're growing weeds. Oh, if you sow seed, but you don't water it through prayer, fasting, now you're just feeding the birds. Because they're going to come eat the seed you've sown because without water, it's not growing. <laughs> this is really too plain, isn't it? You, you can, you can tell already how plain it is. So, so Mark 4, 26 says, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed in the ground. He said, that's, that's the kingdom of God. How, how about this? Uh, Matthew 13, 31, another parable he put forth saying, the kingdom of heaven is like two. The king, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. You don't have any revival unless the devil can show up. Find a place to roost. <laughs> you don't have any, if you don't have any birds roosting in your tree, you're not having much revival. Devil's more faithful to church than most humans, right? Well, how about this one? This is Mark 4.30. And he said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? 
Isn't that what I, my question I asked in the beginning? Lord, what, what do we measure what we do by? How do, what do we compare ourselves to so that we can know whether or not we're abiding by your word? And he said, whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when it is sown in the earth is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up, becometh great, greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And then we all know about these scriptures. <laughs> and he spake many things un- unto them in parables saying, behold, a sore went forth to sow. And this, these principles are so critical. He repeated them in three different gospels. You won't find the mustard seed parable, but in two of the three. You won't find that very first one I read about, uh, about casting the seed in the ground and sleeping and it coming up. You only find that in one of the three. But you find the sower parable in three of the three. Three and three. I found a verse that's really unique. It says, is the seed still in the barn? That question was asked. I think it was uh, Joel chapter two. Is the seed still in the barn? In other words, you can't grow a crop with a seed in the barn. But where do we do most of our seed sowing? From a pulpit to a group of people gathered in the barn. Now, <laughs> a sower went forth to sow. I, no, I'm not going to get into that now. I'm going to get into that later. Okay. So I'm not, I, you know those and it's, you can read it if you want. And then finally, here's another one. Matthew 13, 24, another parable put he forth among them, unto them saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, there appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Boy, that's different than the approach of most preachers, isn't it? We will run those tares off. Just know this, every, for every tear you run off, you're going to take some wheat with it. I, I'm sorry, that's what the Bible says. I have this really simplistic, childlike approach to the Scripture. What it says is true. Not what I think, but what it says. So therefore, what does that mean? That mean, it doesn't mean we don't preach the truth. Just means we're not trying to uproot the tares. Why? Because we don't want the, 
the in, those that the, the wheat that the roots are intermingled with to be ripped out with the tares. And there's no such thing as tares in your group that hasn't intermingled their roots with the wheat you're trying to reach. The people you're trying to pastor. He said, let them both, this is verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I say to the reapers, gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. He said the harvest, in his interpretation of that parable, he said the harvest is the end of the world. But the Greek word there is not cosmos for world, it's eon or age. In this context, the harvest is talked about is the rapture. And that fits with what I have taught for years. That everybody who has been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost, regardless of what they're living and thinking today, will be raptured for the, and stand before the judgment seat of Christ. If you've ever been baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, you don't get a second chance in tribulation. No second chance. Every backslider is going to to be caught away to stand before Christ and cast into outer darkness from the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment seat of Christ is not the same as the great white throne judgment. The judgment seat of Christ is for the church. Because the Bible says judgment must begin first at the house of God. He's not going to judge the world till he first judges the church. And that includes everybody who was in the church. And he doesn't, you don't go back to being a sinner once you've been born again. You don't go back to that. You can't ever go back to what you were. And you're eternally accountable for what you received. Tears. You know the thing about tears? When they're first growing, they look just like wheat. You can't tell tares from the wheat till the wheat gets fruitful and the wheat has substance and it will bend over and tares don't have substance and they stand up above everybody. Hey, look at me. (laughs) So if the kingdom of heaven is like unto, and every one of these these parables is about the kingdom of heaven being like unto, uh, sowing seed, watering seed, reaping the harvest produced by the seed, then <laughs> how does that eliminate us? Because you see John 3 and 5, 3, 3 and 3, 5 tells us that we're born again to see the kingdom. We're born of water and the spirit to enter the kingdom uh, John 17, 21 says the kingdom of God's within you. Matthew chapter 16, verses 18, 19 is going to build his church. The gates of hell can't prevail against it. And he gives unto us the keys of the kingdom. And then finally, 
uh, not in sequence in the, in the book, but in sequence in these notes, we are to seek first the kingdom. You can't separate the kingdom from the church. But here's the difference. The church is who we are. The church is not what we do. There is no biblical basis for teaching the church is what we do. And yet in Pentecostal circles, church is what we do. Church is not what we do. Church is who we are. The kingdom of God is what we do. Another point with this, and some of you have heard me teach on this before. I won't read all the scriptures, but Matthew 26, 26, Mark 14, 22, Luke 22, 19, 1 uh, Corinthians 10, 16 through 17, and every one of those places, the first three of those, Jesus equated bread with his body. He blessed the bread, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. And then Paul, quoting Jesus in 1 Corinthians 10, equated bread with his body. <laughs> Is it, is it really possible <laughs> that we think the Lord just throw these things out, has no idea what their significance is? I've taught many years ago and still have notes on it that I was planning on writing a book on someday, one of these days, on the process of making bread. Because part of the process of making bread is this first part that I'm teaching tonight. How do you get bread? You gotta grow wheat. Or rye. Grain. You have to grow grain. And you make bread from grain. And what's the process? If bread is his body, how do you get bread? And how do you add to the body? By continuing the process of making bread. Now, this is significant, and I'd like for, I'm not going to take the time to go into the depth of it, but I'm going to make the statement. When God talks about your personal involvement, where you are accountable to Him and Him alone for your involvement with the lost, He uses the grape harvest, He uses fig harvest, and the olive harvest. Every one of those is used, mostly the vine and the grape harvest, but every one of those is used to talk about my personal involvement with the lost. But when God is speaking of the church body's involvement with the lost, he never refers to vines, never refers to fig trees, never refers to olive trees. He only refers to either, in a small amount of space, net fishing, or to a large degree, the grain harvest. Because the grain harvest is a joint effort of the body. Two or three or four of us can get together, we can go fishing. But to produce a grain harvest, everybody's got to find their place, everybody's got to be faithful to their place, 
And God will use us to do exactly that. I'm not going to read all those verses. You know most of those. And you can read them later if you're interested in getting the notes to study. This is a significant point. We are living in a period of time, and it's about to be manifested how different it is. Where God is not going to violate the principles. God is a God of eternal principles and patterns. He will not violate his principles of the harvest cycle. But he is going to take a lot of the time out of it. And the book says in the last days there's going to be multiple harvest. Rapid Multiple harvest. You can put this one on the screen, please. Amos 9 and 13. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. Now, <laughs> as we will get into it a little bit, the plowman plows in the late fall. The reaper reaps in the spring. For the plowman to overtake the reaper, it doesn't mean the reaper is uh, being slothful. It means that God has speeded up the time of the cycle. Because the biblical grain harvest cycle is a full year cycle. And I'll get into that in more detail in a few minutes. It's a full year. And for the plowman to overtake the reaper, or the treader of grapes, him that soweth seed. There's a whole lot of time got to be taken out between these these parts. A lot of time's got to be taken out of that. We're going to have rapid multiple harvests. What does that mean for the church? That means that each one of the parts we will cover in a minute, uh, would be a little bit more than a minute to get into them, but each one of the parts that we will cover that is necessary to, to be done in order to have this harvest that we've been promised, this plenteous harvest, in order for that to happen, every one of, somebody has got to be faithfully doing each one of these. And what will end up happening is in a smaller ministry or in a place where there hasn't been a harvest, the harvest will still have to be sequential. But for those who are becoming apostolic, the harvest will happen so rapidly. There will be someone constantly plowing, someone constantly sowing, somebody constantly reaping. This is the promise. And it's the only way possible for the world to be evangelized before the rapture. Leviticus 26 and 13. This is really good stuff right here. Uh, I wish I had time to read all of it, but I'll read a little bit of it. Uh, if you walk in my statutes, Leviticus 26, 3, I said 13, I'm sorry. Uh, if you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. 
And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And you shall eat bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will rid evil beasts out of the land, neither shall the sword go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. There is a different dimension that comes. The early church, it was adding to the church daily. But some years later in chapter 6, they got to the place the Lord was multiplying the disciples. It's a different dimension. We're not going to reach the world just adding people to the church every day. There's got to be a multiplication. Got to be a multiplication. Again, we are called to be sowers, waters, and reapers. John chapter 4, 34. Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He's standing at the curb of the well where he had just spoken to this Samaritan woman. And she has left to go back to her town to tell them that I've just met the Christ. His disciples show up because he sent them into town to buy food. He did that to get rid of them, rid of them because They would have made the woman very uncomfortable with their attitude. So when they get back with food and they try to feed him, he says this. Jesus saith unto them, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Now, (laughs) what is the will of him that sent me and what is the work that needs to be finished? Let's read. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. Ready? One soweth, and another reapeth. On a small farm... Where there's not much happening at this moment. A few people have got to do each one of these parts of the cycle as you work through that. But as the crop increases, and in this case, as people get saved and they get trained to be laborers, then you can have rapid multiple harvests because then people can be assigned one particular task. Okay, you're a sower. Okay, you're a reaper. And the qualities, the qualifications for each one of those is different. <laughs> because, my friend, sowing doesn't require being saved very long. How much talent does it take to stick your hand in a sack or a jar, grab a hand full of seeds and go like this? 
But reaping requires some skill, some experience, some knowledge. When, when the farmer's working the field, he has a certain number of reapers. Everybody else is there to support what the reapers are doing. The reapers don't reap sheaves and then stop and bind them up and carry them back to the threshing floor and then go back and get some more. No, no. The reapers are skilled and they're reaping and, 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 and bundling and lay them on the ground and reaping. They're just working and working and working. But the, those that are supporting what the reapers are doing are the ones that are picking up the the, uh, 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 the bundles of sheaves on their shoulders, carrying them back to the threshing floor, coming back, going back and forth. Everybody has a place. Verse 37, herein is he, is that saying true? One soweth another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor. Other men labored and ye entered into their labors. That's something else there. In fact, there's a whole document that really goes into that if you're interested it's one of the three documents uh the two documents online besides these notes are uh the uh the harvest cycle and the sequence of the cycle or the sequence of the resurrection or the sequence of the harvest the actual harvest itself has a sequence to it first fruits harvest gleanings the harvest cycle is are the steps you get from the ground being fallow all the way to the field being reaped. Two different things. The sequence of the, of the harvest and the cycle of the, or the, or the harvest cycle. Okay. Uh, I like this one. I like them all, but this one's really good. First, second Corinthians chapter nine, verse eight. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work, as it is written, He that dispersed abroad, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now, now, sorry. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both ministereth bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase, increase the fruits of your righteousness, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. Now, what he's simply saying here is this. The reaped harvest can have one of especially three different purposes. The first purpose of your harvest is to feed your family. Then there's seed that's set aside and stored for the next sowing season. And if you have plenty of seed to make bread for your family till the next harvest, and you've got plenty of seed to sow all of your field, then you take the excess and sell it on the open market, and that's your profit. The bread and the seed to sow for the next crop is what's necessary to sustain you. But he wants to give us a harvest that's so bountiful that we have more than enough to make bread for us and to have plenty of seed to sow everything that can be sown next year. And that's good, isn't it? Yeah. Praise God. Where's that coming from? Uh so, and, and, 
He wants us to have excess for profit. He wants profit. Thank you. Now, we're there. Oh, there it is. Okay, hey, I'm doing pretty good, time-wise. <laughs> Here's the harvest cycle. We will start with the end of the previous harvest. After all the field has been reaped possible, which is in early June, now we get to the threshing and we get to the uh, winnowing and sifting and all of that, taking what we've reaped and processing it. But while that happens, the ground lies untouched from June through July, through August, through September, through October, and into November, the ground goes absolutely untouched. What happens to untouched ground? Don't we have, don't we have Kleenexes on the platform anymore? Oh, I can't walk that far. <laughs> Not for this moment. So, what happens to ground left without rain? Because it doesn't rain during that period of time at all. Well, just need a couple of those. Thank you. What happens? It gets hard. What does the Bible call that ground? Fallow ground. There's no rain falling, which is a type of the blessings of God. The sun is shining, so there's heat. And the ground gets hard. Well, the Bible talks about, even in the Old Testament, uh, beating your swords into plowshares, and then if war was there, you'd beat your plowshares into swords. So that implies that Israel actually had metal Plows. But the problem is, this ground gets so hard that you can't plow it. So the first thing that's got to happen is the early rain. The early rain falls in uh, November or through early December. It softens the ground. It's a, it's a gentle rain. We would call it showers. They would last, it lasts for several days. The ground is so hard that a heavy rain would wash right off. So the early rain is always gentle and lasts for two or three days on, two or three or four days off until the ground is completely softened again. The bless, the rain comes down to soften the ground to get it ready to plow. If you sow seed on unplowed ground, the birds of the air will come and eat it. You won't have a crop. So the first thing that has to happen is rain has to come. We'll talk about how that happens. Then after that, 
is the softening of the ground so that you can plow it. After plowing comes planting or sowing. After sowing comes what? Nothing. That's God's time. Some sow, some water. God gives the increase. Oh, watering, yes, we participate, but, and we need to participate, but God is the one that's got to make it grow. We can't make it grow. We don't have any power or authority to make it grow. And the book says, every plant that your heavenly father has not planted shall be rooted up. So everything we use our intellect and ability to make grow, he rejects. He will not accept it. He rejects it. Use your personality. Use your oratory. Use all your efforts to woo and wow people and, and, and use your ability to manipulate people's emotions and get them in the altar. And if they try to repent and they will praise the Lord, they'll get the Holy Ghost. But the Father doesn't consider he planted because he's not the one who put that seed there. Flesh put the seed there. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So it's either flesh putting the seed there or it's spirit putting the seed there. And you can't start out in the flesh and become spiritual. You can start out in the spirit and get carnal. You can start out in the spirit and get to flesh. But you can't start out in the flesh and get to the spirit. Not with this particular crop. And the problem is, you can see people get saved like that, but you can't pastor them. Because the Father doesn't take ownership of them. Well, that's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. That's why the church is going to be judged for it. That's why there's going to be some significant payment unless there's genuine repentance that takes place by everybody who has manipulated people into the church through flesh, intellect, ability, personality, manipulation. Because like the Lord said to the Pharisees, you make them twofold more the child of hell than you are. You encompass whatever it was he said to make proselytes. And you make them twice the child of hell that you are. And in Pentecost today, buddy, have we got some folks that's come up with some methods. They know how to do it. They know how to get a crowd. They know how to manipulate people in the altar. They know how to manipulate people's emotions so that they'll get some measure of the Holy Ghost. But they planted the seed. God didn't. And he doesn't take ownership of them. And some of you look at me like, looking at me like, you're kidding, brother, right? If I'm kidding, the Bible's kidding. I don't think the Bible kids about that. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. 
And so after the watering, the sowing and the watering, God does the growing. After the growing is finished, before the harvest, there comes the latter rain. The latter rain does not produce the harvest. It matures it and prepares it for the harvest. Why? The worst thing that can happen is to have it rain during harvest. What does that mean? That means there's got to be a transition between what we pray down for us and us giving ourselves without reservation to the harvest, even though there's nothing directly in it for us. So let's talk about this a little bit. Here's just one of the verses that absolutely guarantees a harvest and tells us how to have a guaranteed harvest. Anybody ever heard of Psalms 126 verse 5? They that do what? Sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Where do these, where do these tears come from? Do they come from despair? Nah. Do they come from fear? No. No, they don't. Where do they come from? They come from the Father's love. For the lost that we allow to flow through us. How many times have we been in the presence of God and suddenly we just were weeping and not knowing why we were weeping. Now you may know an individual that's lost and you may weep praying for them and that may be valid. But that's not going to produce a very great harvest. Because this is talking about somebody who can weep over the harvest. Jeremiah said, oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his, what? What's he bringing? Sheaves. Now, we I'm not going to go into it tonight. But most of you, if you've heard this teaching at all, knows that a sheaf includes stalk, branches, leaves, and wheat. And what was good in the field, necessary in the field, as soon as it gets laid on the threshing floor, is not good. And the Lord immediately begins to thresh, which separates the chaff from the wheat, And then the winnower, which is only one of him, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes, throws everything up in the air so that the wind can blow the chaff off the threshing floor. The wheat falls back on the floor. And then you're left with piles of wheat, but it's got particles in it, rocks, stones, other stuff. And then it's put in the sieve and it's sifted until the impurities impurities are taken out. And then it's stored for later use, whatever the purpose of it is. Now... Here's the problem with no rain. Jeremiah 4 and 3. This is an amazing verse. 
For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. I'm going to talk about this a little bit, but right, really I want to talk about it right now. For a minute at least. The sower went throw up forth to sow and some fell on the wayside, some fell on stony ground, some fell on thorny ground, and some fell on good ground. Well, that's terrible, isn't it? Man, it's really terrible that poor thorny ground and poor stony ground. It just wasn't good enough. No, that's not the problem. What, what that saying is, it's unplowed ground that if it had been plowed, the stones would have been revealed and could have been removed from the field. And if it had weeds and thorns in it by being Plowed the seeds or the roots of the weeds and thorns would have been exposed to the air and they would have died. So thorny ground and stony ground is a result of the farmer not faithfully plowing his field. So the sower goes out and sows seed on what's available. Because the plower didn't do his job. One more time. For thus saith the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, plow, and sow not among thorns. It can't get any clearer than that. The reason you would sow among thorns is you haven't plowed the ground. How about Hosea 10 and 12? Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow, uh, break up your fallow ground for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So there we now know what you do with fallow ground. Early rain is the result of repentance, rededication, and revival. Among the people of God. No rain is a judgment from God upon sin. You ever heard this one before? Second Chronicles 7.13 If I shut up heaven that there be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or I send, if I send pestilence among my people. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. How about Second Chronicles 6, verse 26? When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee. When there's no blessing of God. Because the early rain is showers of blessing. When, when we're not living in a condition that would, it would cause God to respond to our commitment, our dedication, our sacrifice, by pouring out rain. The only way you get rain on fallow ground is repent, rededicate, be revived, and God responds. With blessing. 
When the heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against thee. Yet if they pray toward this place and confess thy name. And turn from their sin when thou dost afflict them. Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants. And of the people of thy people Israel. When thou hast taught them the good way wherein they should walk. And send rain upon thy land which thou hast given unto thy people for inheritance. No early rain only results from one thing. The people of God living in sin. Not repentant. Not dedicated. Not revived. So, <laughs> there has to be seasons of this. Has to be seasons of this. Every one of us has to have seasons, not 24-7, not every time we come to church. But there needs to be seasons of this where every one of us examines ourselves from the Word of God, whether it's the preached Word or the Word that God gives us when we're praying or both of those. In that season where we, where we, the light of God is shined in our hearts and we see ourselves and our actions in a light we haven't seen ourselves before. And we confess, we speak in agreement with the Lord that what we're doing is wrong. So we repent and we recommit or rededicate. And then he gives revival to us. And when we do that, rain's automatic. It's guaranteed. Brother Libby's preached this message for years, and it's true. <laughs> Job 36, 27. For he maketh small the drops of water. They pour down rain according to the vapor thereof, which the clouds do drop and distill upon man abundantly. Or Psalms 135 and verse 7. He causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings for the rain. And then this one is an amazing verse. Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 12 and 13. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath, excuse me, he hath established the world by his wisdom and hath stretched out the heavens by his discretion. When he uttereth his voice, there's a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causeth the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He maketh lightnings with rain and bringeth forth the wind out of his treasures. <laughs> this is an amazing verse. What's really amazing, and I didn't include it here, these two verses are quoted again exactly, not in some other book, but in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 51. I've never seen that happen any place in the Bible, ever in my whole life. It's the only place I know of in all of my study where two verses are repeated word for word by the same author. And when you read the context where they're written, the context seems different in both places. But the words are the same. <sighs> vapor. He causes the vapor to go up. How does he call vapor to go up? If vapors are prayers, <laughs> vapor goes up, 
Evaporation takes place from bodies of water. Evaporation takes place. The vapor goes up. It gathers in the clouds. The wind takes the clouds over the land, causes the water, the, the clouds to cool. That causes condensation called rain, and it falls upon the ground. It collects in little rivulets and streams and rivers and flows down toward the sea for the cycle to be completed over and over again. God designed it like that. But it all starts with evaporation. Vapors going up. The prayers of the people of God go up. And cause the rain to come down. <laughs> I got a bunch of verses on this. So I'm going to skip them for time's sake. Because I want to get into what we're doing here. So, we pray, and this is the prayer of repentance, consecration, dedication, recommitment, revival. Judgment begins at the house of God. This is where the dying process has got to start right here for the people involved in the cycle. Those vapors of prayers go up. And God produces the showers of blessing called the early rain to soften the fallow ground. And here comes the plowing. Plowing may be something different than you think. Plowing is breaking up the the obstacles or the resistance to the seed. As Antioch. Tell me what we have learned to do to come against resistance. Spiritual warfare. Yes, plowing is preaching the word and the spirit of God. Plowing is all of that. But the actual breaking up of the ground is spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare breaks up the ground and prepares it for the seed. The World Network of Prayer, the UPCI's uh, prayer ministry, the World Network of Prayer, have had a ministry for years that they call plowing before the planting. They have teams of people that are willing to commit to go to an area where a new church is going to be started and to pray for a full week in intercessoral warfare, walking the streets and praying. To break up the fallow ground. Plowing before the planting. (laughs) And in a rapid series of multiple harvests, there are going to be people who focus on that element of the plowing. Not Maybe not every day, but on a very regular basis. To keep the resistance broken. So the seed is always found. Can always find a a safe lodging place. So the fowls of the air can't get to it. So the first prayer. Is the prayer of repentance. Rededication. And revival. 
sending vapor up to God because of the praise and thanksgiving that will result from knowing that you are forgiven and that you are revived and that you're refocused in your life. And the praise and the thanksgiving that goes up in your language and in other tongues. And all of that goes up and it becomes the vapor of God falling on the ground to soften the ground. But that doesn't break the resistance. It only minimizes or reduces the amount of resistance that hard ground has to the plow. But the supernatural part of that is there's got to be spiritual warfare. There's got to be some breaking up of that resistance. You can't spoil the strong man's house till you first bind the strong man. You've got to remove the resistance. And I don't care how well you do every other part of this cycle. If you don't do this, the seed is not going to grow. And all you're doing is wasting good seed. I will uh, let you study that if you're interested. Now, after the early rain comes, and then the the plowing comes through preaching and the Spirit of God and intercessory warfare, it's time to sow. Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered. You Surely understand there's a difference between sowing and planting. Sowing is evangelism. It's done indiscriminately. But then when you get a response, somebody visits church and they accept a Bible study, you're no longer sowing, you're planting. It moves into a different dimension. It is putting seed in their life and praying for them on purpose. It's on purpose. But let's go back to the sowing. Sowing or broadcasting seed is indiscriminate sowing of the seed. It's indiscriminate. It's not, it's not hook and line fishing. It's net fishing. It's indiscriminate. It, it touches everybody. The scripture says give, give a little to seven and also to eight because you don't know which one's going to work today. There needs to be people in our church who are willing to be sowers. One sows and another reaps, the scripture says. There needs to be people so they don't have to know the book cold. They don't, they don't have to even, uh, you know, they don't have to be the, 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 the greatest prayer warriors going. They just have to be living right and, and, and desiring to grow in God and they want to be involved. And so they're going to sow. It may be door hangers. It may be passing out flyers. It may be passing out tracks, but it's sowing seed. The man who pastored the church in Greenville, South Carolina, where I was preaching a revival when I finally surrendered to the call of God to come to Annapolis, was actually from Sunbury, Pennsylvania. The man who was the pastor in that town at the time, his name was Brother Manuel. 
he had written a number of tracts that are still being published today. This 16-year-old boy that knew nothing about God was walking down the street in his hometown one day and found it, saw a piece of paper laying on the ground that somebody had thrown away. Picked it up off the sidewalk and began to read it. It smote his heart. <laughs> he flipped on the back and saw the address. And he went and knocked on the pastor's door. If I remember the story correctly, he got baptized and filled with the Holy Ghost that weekend. He's built two great churches. One in South Carolina and one in Pennsylvania. Numbers of preachers have been, have come up under his ministry and been trained because of a seed that somebody sowed, somebody else didn't want, but was laying on the sidewalk and God brought the man by where the seed was. We've gotten to where we don't believe in canvassing anymore, just knocking on doors. For me, I'm not called a canvas. I'm a reaper. I, I know how to be sensitive to the Spirit and be led to the right door at the right time. I've done it. There are people saved today that I've done that. But canvassing? <laughs> just knocking on doors saying, just want to let you know we're, we'd like to invite you to church or one thing that's being very, that's being used in my opinion very successfully is, uh, just want to check, see if you have any needs you'd like for us to pray for. You don't have to be able to quote umpteen scriptures. You just have to be willing to sow the seed. You want to get new people involved? This is the easiest way to get them involved. Now, People can sow by themselves, but most people do better if they're sowing with a group. I'll say it again. Seed sown without watering will not grow. So there's first the vapor goes up, then the vapor of prayer, repentance of prayer goes up. That comes down as the early rain which softens the ground and then becomes the, the deep intercessory prayer that breaks up the resistance, gets ready for the casting of the seed. That's what determines whether or not the seed will, will has any chance of being uh, uh, fruitful. And then comes those who water the seed because it's a winter wheat crop. It's a winter grain crop. And, and there has to be gentle rain off and on throughout the entire winter for this to grow. Somebody's got to be praying for the seed to be watered. Somebody's got to continue to pray. The only seeds that are sown without intent are weeds. But every good seed must be sown on purpose. No seeds, no crop. No crop, no harvest. 
Pretty simple, isn't it? Cast Ecclesiastes 1. Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, also to eight, for thou knowest not what what evil shall be upon the earth. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If the tree falleth toward the south or toward the north of the place where the tree falleth, there it shall be. He that observeth the the wind shall not sow. He that regardeth the clouds shall not reap. That's not a good thing. Some people are looking for all kind of excuses to not be involved. Oh, well, I can't sow today because it might be a little windy. And I can't reap today because it's cloudy. It may rain. As thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit, nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thy hand. For thou knowest not whither shall prosper, either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Oh, church. I've, I've taught and preached this stuff for years, but this weekend, I'm riding along driving, trying to get home, and this is just lighting me up because I'm going, wow. I can look at everything we're doing and say, is it involved in any one of these things? Because everything we're doing that's not involved in one of these things is of the flesh. It's not of God. Every program, every plan, every effort that doesn't fit in one of these places is not of God. It's religion. Brother Wright, that's a pretty strong statement. You have no idea how much I calm that down. I'm not kidding. That's just about as gently as I know how to say that. And oh, God help us because I now have a measure. And I'm the bishop. And the questions are going to be asked. What are you doing? Okay. Now, that's great. Tell me where this fits. How does this activity, this effort, do one of these? You know what this does? It almost eliminates everything that's turned inward. Just about eliminates everything that's turned inward. Because in all honesty, I'd like you to prove to me that turned inward ministry is being effective. I'd like for you to prove that to me. That self-absorbed, turned inward ministry for us, 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 us is accomplishing anything. Because if it is, you sure need to show me how it is because I don't see it. Or how about this one? Second Corinthians 9 verse 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. 
Every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the children forgiver. That's talking about money. No, it's not. It takes time to sow. You've got to be willing to, you've got to be cheerfully willing to get involved in sowing. I tell you what's so amazing. When, when there wasn't very many of us, and we'd go out and knock on doors, we'd go out witnessing the people, and the weekend would come, and when I said the weekend would come, we had church Thursday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, for the first 13 years. Right? Yeah. So when the weekend came, we had three services coming. That meant there were three services for people to have an opportunity that you witnessed to to come to church. And a lot of times, none of those people we're talked to came. But here comes visitors. We don't even know how they got here. Because God was faithful. God was faithful because we gave willingly, cheerfully, to so bountifully. And God gave us an abundant crop. Even from situations that we didn't sow anything in. Huh. You know what's really the trouble with this, honestly? Huh. The trouble with this is it's so clear that there's no longer any question why what's not happening is not happening. Have you done this? Have you done this? Are you doing this? Is this happening? Is anybody doing this? Is this going on? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? I can look at the Scripture and I know, how am I supposed to be saved? Well, have I done this? Is this happening? Have I received that? I can go by the Scripture and measure my experience and my faith by what the Bible says, and I know whether or not I've gotten saved. Am I living a separated life? Now, I know that having, therefore, these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of the Lord. It's a lot more difficult for me to know just how corrupted my spirit is. It is true that I can have something on the outside that looks right while it's wrong inside, but it's impossible for me to be right inside and it not come outside. And so I've got scriptures. They're, they're not do's and don'ts. There means whereby I can judge where I am. I can measure where I am. I can see where I am in God. That's God's principle. And now I'm presenting you tonight just touching on the abundance of scriptures on this subject. I now know how to measure what we're involved in. Because if we're involved in each one of these, 
we're going to have a problem by the end of the year. You couldn't put all those people in your auditorium Sunday, could you? Or could you? Was it kind of get, you had people, you had people that weren't in the auditorium though that were there. Did everybody come in the auditorium? Kids too? No. The combined auto works had Easter Sunday together in Baltimore had 245. That's almost a hundred more than they normally run combined. Uh, Oh, and they had eight baptized and five received the Holy Ghost. But that's impossible. It was Easter Sunday. <laughs> Somebody forgot to tell them it was impossible. But there's a problem here. <laughs> that building only holds so many, even with the overflow. I don't know the exact number. Do you know? I counted at least 1,100. Brother Mott, Brother Barr, either one of you know the number for Sunday? Counting daughter works and preaching points and everybody? Okay. <laughs> Folks, some of you have take, you're taking this very defensively, and I'm not trying to communicate it to make you defensive. If that's what I'm doing, forgive me. That's not what I was trying to do here. But I'm telling you right now, if you're frustrated and you don't know what's wrong and you don't know how to fix what's wrong, here it is, plain and simple and straightforward. Do this, then do this, then do this, do this, 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 increase. It's that simple. You don't have to have a doctorate degree to plow field, put seed in the ground. Both of my grandfathers were farmers. They were intelligent men. Neither one of them had an education. But they supported, one supported 12 kids off his 40 acres. Another supported nine kids off his 40 acres. And they weren't starving to death. They had clothes. So they were smart enough to be able to have enough increase from their efforts to take care of those families. And out of the 12, at least nine of them ended up with college degrees. And out of the nine, two of the nine became millionaires. And all their dads had was 40-acre farms. So, again, there doesn't have to be a lot of a spiritual uh, advancement in understanding and wisdom to just be involved in sowing seed. Everybody's got to repent. The rain comes. <sighs> 
But somebody's got to get, go to the next level in intercession and break up that ground. And then anyone who's willing to participate can do something to sow seed. And then there needs to be continual prayer for the rain to come down to water that seed that grows. Oh, wait a minute. What is the latter rain? Anybody ever heard of travail intercession? The latter rain is what prepares the crop for harvest. Travail is what prepares the baby for birth. We, we know that travail intercession and warfare intercession are not the same thing. Warfare tra- intercession breaks up resistance. Travail intercession births. Both of them are equally important. You can't do it without both. It's an abundance of rain. But let me tell you what happens as a result of this rain. There has to be a transition from this downpour to harvest because you don't want it raining in the harvest. That means something happens to us in this period of time of the latter rain where we see beyond ourselves and it's no more about what I'm getting out of this but what God can do through me. It's no more whether or not I've got a position or if everybody knows who I am or what my name is. I am a part of what God's doing and I want to give myself. I read one reference today that made the statement that harvest is so critical to the success of a a, a farm endeavor that many times the owner of the farm and his family and his hired hands will actually live in the field till the harvest is done. They don't even go back to the house. Getting that crop in from the field is so urgent. They just live in the field. Because it's harvest time. It's harvest time. We have these promises, dearly beloved. Genesis 8:22. While the earth remaineth, this is what he told Noah. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. But look what he started with. Cold and heat's pretty, pretty guaranteed, isn't it? Summer and winter's pretty guaranteed, isn't it? Day and night sure is guaranteed. And in that same grouping, he grouped seed time and harvest. So if I'm not having a spiritual seed time, and I'm not having a spiritual harvest, it's not because God is letting us down. It's that we're simply not doing what he has prescribed as the process to have a harvest. How about this one? Jeremiah 25, or excuse me, 5, Jeremiah 5 and verse 23. But this people hath a revolting and rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart. This is what the Lord wants us to say. Let us now fear the Lord our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter in his season. He reserveth unto us the appointed Weeks 
of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned away these things. And your sins have withholden good things from you. That's why the thing it's got to start is repentance, rededication, and revival. Which sends up vapors of prayer and then vapors of praise and thanksgiving and worship. That causes the the early rain to come to soften the soil. And pre, pre create a climate that, that that soil can be broken up and gotten ready for the seed. It's promised. God has promised this to us. This is his cycle. The kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven is like unto this. These principles are what the kingdom of heaven is like. And the church is who we are. The kingdom is what we do. So what we do is like unto these principles. That's what we're called to do. And I know, I know, I've seen this look on too many faces in my life. Well, you just take everything I do and you just crush it all up into a trash can. I, I didn't write this. This isn't my message. These aren't my words. This, this isn't my plan. <laughs> I've said it many times, but you know what's so great about beating your head against the wall? It feels really good when you stop. And some of us are just stubborn enough. We're going to try to make our way work. But hear me tonight. I'm saying this to you in the Holy Ghost. Those of you that want to make your, your traditions work, you want to be Pentecostal, You don't want to be apostolic. You're about to get passed by. You're going to be embarrassed. And the only one embarrassing you is going to be you. It's not going to be me. It's not going to be the executive council. Not anybody's going to try to embarrass you. When you sit around and you're still doing what you've always done and nothing's happening. And those that have taken a hold of this by faith. And they're doing, they're, they're, they're using this as the measuring rod. The pattern by which to come. To examine everything they're doing. And they're throwing out time consuming stuff. That's producing nothing. God help us. How much time consuming stuff. People that are committed. Are involved with. That are produced. That's producing nothing. 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 Produce nothing. And the old cliche that's, I don't even know how old it is. If you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again, you're going to keep getting what you've always got. And make all the excuses you want about why something's not happening. The bottom line is, and I'm not saying this about you, I'm saying that God's saying this to me. There is a clear pattern of scripture that God has revealed that says 
You do this my way, here's what's going to happen. You do this way, do it your way, neglect this because some of this you don't want to do. What's going to happen is nothing at the best. Now, (laughs) that's 24 pages. And, and I have done virtually no study to the depth I'm, I'm looking for here. I want this to so get a hold of my mind and my heart and my spirit, my soul, my being, that I'm consumed with it. I won't be consumed with this. You know what's, what's amazing about this? You ready? If I do these same exact steps, a one foot square plot of ground will produce an increase. Whether I've got a one foot square plot of ground or a hundred thousand acres, To sow and reap. The principles are true and they work because they're of God. So it's not, well, I don't have, I don't have this or I don't have that or we don't have this or what. No, no, that's not the way it is. It's not the way it is. We have a direction. I can't say this to anybody else that may watch this. This is being recorded. I can't say this to anybody else. Well, to a few I could, but I'm saying this to Antioch. This is a thus saith the Lord to Antioch. That's how strongly I felt this. This is thus saith the Lord. Receive it. Do it to your great blessing. Reject it. Excuse your way out of it to your great harm. It's a word from God. This isn't a good idea. This isn't some cool, neat thing that I've come up with to teach. This is a word from God. And the problem is, whether I like it or agree with it or not, it suddenly got really simple, didn't it? It's pretty simple, isn't it? Doesn't have anything to do with ability, personality, (laughs) resources. If I can repent, God will respond. He'll rain on my ground. And then whether I've got to use a hoe or a $100,000 tractor to plow it up, doesn't matter. Principle works. Good seed is good. It's the word of God. Seed's good. I scatter it. I, 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 I could send 55-year-olds out and pretty much sow that field. And wouldn't they have fun scattering seed like that? With nobody telling them, stop. 
And that if someone will continue to water until it's time for the harvest, and then someone will do the, the travail intercession for the latter rain to be poured out, then there's going to be an, a, a great, great harvest. But this is what's so exciting to me, and this is what I believed. As long as I can remember. I don't remember when I started believing this. But I saw Amos 9.13 many, 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 many years ago. And have believed that in the end time, there will be rapid, multiple harvests. He that goeth forth and weepeth. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Father, I thank you tonight for this opportunity to be together. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your spirit. I bind every spirit of opposition that would try to steal this word out of the hearts of those who are hearing it now or will hear it in the future. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I protect this seed by the name of Jesus, by the authority of God, that it would grow up in us and produce the faith to participate in what you've called us to be and do. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Praise God. One more thing before we go again. ApostolicIron.com, under documents, there are three documents that have been posted today. One is the sequence of the harvest. The other is the harvest cycle. And there's a third document that's entitled Leadership Meeting. Why did I do that? Because that document will be replaced as soon as I can, hopefully sooner than later, with a document that reads, that's titled, The Guaranteed Harvest. So if you go to the website and you're still seeing leadership uh, meeting, then that's not the final document. But if you go to the website and it says, uh, The Guaranteed Harvest, that's the, the one that I'm going to pretty much stay with for now. Okay? All of it is uh, yours to use. You cannot sell it. It's being given to you freely. You can freely give it away. You cannot sell any of it. Okay? God bless you.